everybody. Hope everybody's doing good Saturday night, and we are live. Very excited about tonight's podcast. We're doing a, a special interview tonight with one of my favorite people in the media, investigative journalist John Ziegler, and we're going to be focusing on one of his high-profile investigations that had to do with the absolute bold-faced innocence of Jerry Sandusky. I know I just shocked some people. Jerry Sandusky is innocent. I invite everybody to watch on many different uh, platforms with the benefit of hindsight, which is a 19-part series about the innocence of Jerry Sandusky. Let me bring John Ziegler in right now. Welcome, John. Glad that you're on. Very, very honored to have you tonight. Just real quick, introduce yourself to everybody. Well, Tom, first of all, thanks so much for having the wisdom and the courage to take on this very toxic uh, topic. Uh, I am the co-host of the, the podcast you just mentioned, With the Benefit of Hindsight. My co-host is Liz Habib, who uh, for many, many years was the uh, Fox television sports anchor here in Los Angeles, where I live. And she is uh, currently a professor of journalism at Syracuse University's very prestigious Newhouse School. So this is a very, very credible project. And it, it's one that was 10 years in the making. Most people probably don't even remember the details of this story, but it broke a national consciousness back in November of 2011, over 10 years ago now. And it resulted in the destruction of many very good lives, the lives of very good people including Jerry Sandusky, including his wife, Dottie. By the way, I think your audience will find it particularly interesting that one of the many, many elements of the perfect storm here, I believe, was that Jerry and Dottie Sandusky being devout Christians pretty much set themselves up for what ended up happening to them. And what happened was not a conspiracy. It was it was not a, a classic uh, framing, if you will. I'm not a conspiracy person at all. In fact, I'm an ardent anti-conspiracy theorist. <laughs> What happened was a perfect storm of events, and it involved Joe Paterno, the legendary football coach at Penn State, and three Penn State administrators, all of whom had exceedingly good reputations up until this time. So those five men right there with stellar reputations were all destroyed in an incredibly short period of time thanks to a media firestorm that was based on no facts, no logic, no truth, and fooled everybody. And as we've seen over the last two years plus with COVID, Tom, yep, once yep. the mainstream news media gets a narrative that they like or that they're invested in, there's no going back. That's right. And I have proven in this podcast that what we were told 10 years ago just wasn't true. Not only wasn't true, didn't make any sense. And not only does it not make any sense, I've actually, as you know, because you've listened to all the, po all the podcast episodes, I've even gone to the extraordinary lengths of proving what did happen. Right. I, my my right. theory of what actually occurred is, is far more detailed, far more logical than the fairy tale that we were told 10 years ago, which never made any sense whatsoever to anybody who has any clue about college football, about Pennsylvania, about human nature, human sexuality. None of it made any sense. But well, that's a, yeah, um, unfortunately, that's this is one yeah. of those situations where we no longer live in a world where truth matters very much. Right. And trying to fix this problem is exceedingly difficult. And even trying to get any kind of traction in the media is, is, is impossible because they are deeply, deeply invested in their fairy tale that they created, this evil fairy tale from 10 years ago. Well, here's the thing, and this is what we have to try to break through tonight, because just when I began to listen to With the Benefit of Hindsight last year, in April, I was listening to it, and I thought, I mean, I'm like, there's no way. I, somebody who does have my finger on the pulse of the news, do a podcast, everything else, I absolutely was totally and, com and completely stone-cold convinced Jer Jerry Sandusky was completely and totally guilty. And that's the, uh, we have to try to break through that. But it, it's actually what you said was, was very poignant because it's exactly the sort of climate that we live in today. If you say that you want to understand how deadly COVID is, that means you're pro-death. So if you go and you say, you know what, I want to know the facts behind this case. What did, what did Jerry Sandusky do? What didn't he do? Well, now you're pro-pedophilia. So that, that's the problem, and, that, and that's the thing. You can't dare say anything. You, the the, the accusers slash victims, 
They're untouchable. If you dare question them, then you lack compassion. And then you're pro-pedophilia again. And that's where we're at. Let me, let me launch you with this, with, with this, John. You had two aspects of this. You had Sandusky's innocence or guilt, which you at first didn't care about. That wasn't what you were going to investigate. You went to go investigate the Penn State cover-up. Did Joe Paterno and, and the, the names that are important, Graham Spanier, the president of Penn State, if I mess any of this up, fix it for me, uh, Gary Schultz, the vice president of Penn State, and, and, and Tim Curley, the athletic director of Penn State. Now, Graham Spanier ended up being criminally prosecuted. Did Schultz did too. Did Curley? Yeah, all three of them ended up going to jail for something that did not happen. Right. And then even if it had happened, they had nothing to do with. <laughs> and the reason was because of what you just outlined. It became so toxic, this story, that anyone, it was like a nuclear bomb. Anyone that was close to it ended up getting dramatically impacted. And the truth had no power at all. I mean, these guys were totally blindsided. Grant Spanier, Gary Schultz, and Tim Curley are all very good men with great reputations. And they honestly thought that the system was going to work. They thought, this can't be happening. We, we, we didn't do anything wrong. And by the way, they, at first, bought in that Jerry must be guilty, too, back in November of 2011. Because they thought, these, are, these are guys who have been part of the system for their whole lives. They, they thought, there's no way everyone could get this so wrong. Well, by the way, through my work, at least two of them, and I, I believe the third, although I've not had direct communication with Tim Curley, at least two of them have been convinced Jerry's innocent. innocent so the right. guys who went to prison for the cover-up, Graham Spanier and Gary Schultz, both of whom do extensive interviews for our podcast with the benefit of hindsight, over four hours long each, they themselves now know that Jerry Sadusky is innocent. That's how crazy this case is. And, it, and the most absurd part of the whole thing is it's not even close. It's, right. And you, you no. started the show by saying you're positive. You're one of the very few people that's ever done this on, on public media other Absolutely. than myself. So congratulations to you. But um, it's not close. I don't lose an, a wink of sleep for the last eight no. years because the first two years of my investigation, I, I was focused on the Joe Paterno angle. And I thought, this is crazy. This makes no sense. There's no evidence for it. And as I got deeper and deeper after presuming Jerry Zandusky was guilty and interviewing him twice in prison for over six hours and reinvestigating the whole case, I realized, oh, my gosh, he, the guy is innocent. It's not even close. And unfortunately, there's nothing we can do about it. And yet I was faced with this very incredibly difficult decision as to what to do with this information, because I knew it would destroy what was left of my career and, and a large portion of my life. And by the way, that's been worse than I ever possibly yeah. anticipated. I'm a pessimist by nature, but this whole thing has worked out way worse than I ever thought from a personal standpoint. Um, and, and so we did this remarkable podcast, which is, I guess, at least a historical record of what really happened here. But people need to learn from this situation because if this can happen to these guys, Right. If this can happen to them. It can happen to anybody. And by the way, you know, it's remarkable to me that uh, so many things are remarkable about this case, Tom. But but the media is so arrogant and they think, well, we couldn't have possibly blown this to that degree. Oh, really? Um, what about uh, Theranos? What about Bernie Madoff? Uh, <laughs> what about uh, what about um, Duke Lacrosse? What about Manti Teo's girlfriend? Um, <laughs> what, what about the, the Virginia rape case that turned Richard out to be Jewell. a fraud? What, Richard Jewell. What, what about Jesse Smollett? Uh, yeah. I mean, I mean, we've, this is, keeps happening time yeah. and time again, and yet they think it's always a one-off. Oh, well, that, yeah. one, that one was just a, a fluke. No, no. It's now the new normal because exactly the news right. media is fundamentally broken, yep. fundamentally. And the yep. bigger the story I have found, Tom, and this is not just from this, I've been involved in some big stories in my media career. And one of the many things I've learned is the bigger the story, the better chance of the news media blowing it completely. Right. Because oh, yeah. when you have a big story, the, the incentives get perverse. That's and the, right. the incentives in this case were incredibly perverse and everything was flipped upside down 
Uh, three days into the story, when Joe Paterno got fired, the legendary football coach at Penn State, once he gets fired and Penn State is perceived as having pled guilty, this case is over because the media has their narrative. Hey, we, we attacked Joe Paterno. We were right. See, Joe, Penn State admitted it. They fired Joe Paterno. And then that led to a domino effect of injustice, which is still continuing today. And it should be noted the media doesn't focus on this, but Jerry Sandusky, with no money and no political capital, is still appealing at every opportunity today, 10 years later, and is in the process of taking his appeal from the Pennsylvania state courts into the federal court. That never, as you know, and from years in law enforcement, that never happens with a serial pedophile. Never. Let me set you up with this, because here's here's the questions, and this is from years of law enforcement. We have no, now all basically, and I know that I, some of this will be a little bit hyperbolic, but for all intents and purposes, most, if not all of the relevant accusers, and I'm going to, I have a list here for you and then I'm going to have you respond to it. Most, if not all of the relevant accusers had many years of subsequent relationships with Jerry Sandusky and his family afterwards. There's no independent witnesses. This is what everybody needs to get. This is why the man is innocent. There's no independent witnesses of any sexual act, independent witnesses, not one, not a mother, not a father, not a sister, saw Jerry Sandusky engage in sexual activity with anybody. There's no corroborating evidence, nothing. There's no photos, there's no hotel receipts, there's nothing. There's no DNA evidence, zero. Most, most, if not all of these boys, and of course the prosecution tried to put it out as boys, they were really more post-pubescent young men. They weren't eight-year-old boys. It's not a pedophile. Nobody gets that either. Pedophilia is with pre-pubescent people. He's not. So Jerry Sandusky doesn't even qualify as a pedophile. No DNA evidence. No non-independent witnesses. No, nobody. Nobody saw anything. Now everybody thinks Mike McQuarrie, which is what I'm going to launch you into. And by the way, very important, which you brought up on the podcast many times. If you are investigating a pedophile, 1,000% of the time, he will have pedophilia porn on his computer. 1,000% of the time, it's used as leverage by the prosecution. They come in and say, we've already got you for the child porn. Now, do you want to confess and we'll work with you on a plea bargain? Happens 1,000% of the time. They all have porn. Jerry Sandusky, who's more even, I found one person in life who's more of a computer illiterate than me, is Jerry Sandusky. He couldn't, he couldn't have erased his computer if he wanted to. Dottie couldn't erase it if she wanted to. We found, I heard that on the podcast. So the man had no porn. So everybody needs to remember, no, no, all these accusers had subsequent relationships with Jerry Sandusky, upwards of 15 or 20 years. Independent, no independent witnesses, no corroborating evidence, no DNA evidence. So let's look at the two pillars, as you know where I'm going with this, because this will actually get us to cover the Spanier, Schultz, Curly Angle, of course, Aaron Fisher and Alan Myers. We can kind of kill it all with one, you know, two, kill two birds with one stone, although there's many tributaries of this river, as you well know. But let's, let's look into the two pillars uh, theory. Of course, we start off with the wrong date. We, I mean, McQuarrie comes forward, gives the wrong date. So let's start off with that. Let's go, because everybody knows about McQuarrie. And just, so, again, very quickly, everybody needs to know something when it comes to the Mike McQuarrie charge. Jerry Sandusky was exonerated on that. And that's basically what was used to bury him because Aaron Fisher was so useless for two years. They needed Mike McQuarrie to come along. And they, don't even, they didn't even find Jerry Sandusky guilty of doing anything to Alan Myers. So anyway, let's attack the two pillar theory use that to launch into you know how how mike mcquery ended up talking to i believe it was gary schultz and tim curley never did talk to graham spanier go ahead john hit it to the well, two pillar theory what, what you've hit on is what most people know about the story and and the media that's all they know about the story right. is well my gosh we don't have to worry about jerry sandusky being guilty he can't be innocent because a former penn state assistant football coach by the name of mike mcquery witnessed Jerry Sandusky sexually abusing a young boy in a Penn State shower. Game, set, match, right? Oh, done. Well, right. that's what we were told. That's what right. we were told uh, in, in November of 2011. There was a grand jury presentment. The media uh, pretended it was like uh, Moses coming down from Mount Sinai with his tablets and that this was the word of God uh, mm-hmm. when all it was was a grand jury presentment is the prosecution 
throwing everything they can against the wall, um, trying to make something stick with no defense whatsoever. They, they get a free shot at this. And there are so many things that were in that grand jury presentment that were flat out wrong. And the most important and most obvious thing that was wrong, which the prosecution even had to admit to, as you know, and you're alluding to, is the date of this alleged episode. Now, of all the things that you listed that don't exist in this case, one of them, which barely exists at all, which ought to be paramount, are dates. When something happened is incredibly important in all cases. But in a case like this, where basically the only way you can possibly disprove an allegation is that you weren't there in that time and place, dates are incredibly important. Yet, weirdly, the accusers never give, hardly ever give, any legitimate dates. Well, McQueary had a date in that grand jury presentment. This was not a date that the prosecution came up with, you know, willy-nilly. They didn't wake Mike up in the middle of the night and said, hey, Mike, when, do you, when did you think that happened? And he just blurted out a date. No, this was after months and months of intense research and investigation. They came up with the date of March 1st, 2002. That turned out to be totally wrong. Right. Completely and totally wrong. Wrong by, by 13 months. <laughs> they got the, the date, the month, and the year wrong. And the reason why they figured that out was it Gary Schultz, who we've already referenced, one of those that would end up going to jail for the alleged cover-up here, had voluntarily given up his old emails, which proved that the date that Mike McQuarrie had gone to see Joe Paterno to tell him something, we're never going to know exactly what he told him, but we have a pretty darn good idea what he didn't tell him, that the date of that meeting was February 10th, 2001. So that's almost 13 months Different. That, that means that the, the, the latest, the latest, and the pro, of course the prosecution automatically presume this must be the case because they need Mike to have urgency when he comes to go see Joe Paterno. So they presume, well, if the meeting was February 10th, 2001, that means that the assault must have been February 9th, 2001, the night before, and Mike just waited overnight to go see Joe Paterno the next morning to tell him about this horrible thing that he saw in the shower. That's their theory. And my biggest mistake, Tom, and I've made hundreds of mistakes in this case. My biggest mistake, and, and this is a lesson for, for everybody, I think. Follow your instincts, right? Yeah. When, when you get it, your instincts are usually going to be pretty good. And I, I uh, when I interviewed Jason Dusky in prison the first time, there was maybe one thing more than anything else I knew for sure. And that was that in his bones, and by the way, at this point, I'm still presuming Jerry Zanuski is guilty. Right. But I knew, because I've been around the block, when somebody, even if you're a pedophile, you can still tell the truth at times, right? <laughs> I mean, so I knew that he in his bones knew that that February 9th, 2001 date was still wrong. He knew it. And I thought, wow, how can that be? How, how could this not have become a massive issue at trial I would later find out they were because it was they were completely disorganized and, and completely incompetent. But I, I thought there's just no way the prosecution could have gotten this date wrong twice. And so here I was, I, I didn't follow my instincts strongly enough. I did a cursory investigation of that February 9th date. Nothing made sense. I, I, I it, it still was hanging out there. I still thought, wait, that, that that might not be the right date. Jerry might be right about that. And then it wasn't until a couple of years later when some other investigators came up with some information that, that sparked in my brain, wait a minute, there's no way February 9th was a date. Because one of the main things that Mike says about that night, and remember, as you know, in law enforcement, these kind of details are so important when you're dealing with a man's life on your word, right? Your details have got to make some sense. He was clear that that night was an incredibly quiet night on campus at Penn State, that nothing was happening. Which well, we now impossible. know, and how in the world <laughs> this didn't come up at trial is unbelievable, but we now know that across the street from where this happened, there was a sold-out rock concert. And in the building itself, there was a college hockey game going on at exactly that time. So there's no chance in the world 
that February 9, 2001 was the date. Now, without getting into too much detail, you can go to the podcast with the benefit of hindsight. And our first episode deals with this in great detail. I finally figured out what the real date was. Yep. And the real date was almost certainly December 29, 2000, oh, which is six right. weeks earlier than this. And that's incredibly important, not just because McQuarrie and the prosecution get the date wrong twice, but now we've got a six-week waiting period from the time that this episode, whatever it was, happens, and when Mike goes to see Joe Paterno. And then, then there is what, what I believe to be the ultimate smoking gun that McQuarrie did not tell the truth and has ulterior motives, and that is something else did happen on February 9th. 2001. It was not the date that Mike McQuarrie went into the Penn State shower and saw Jerry Sandusky showering with a what turned out to be an almost 14-year-old boy named Alan Myers that you've already referred to. No, that was the date that Mike McQuarrie read in the newspaper that the job he wanted, the Penn State wide receivers coaching job, had just opened up because Kenny Jackson, who was the coach for the Penn State Nittany Lions wide receivers, had gone to the Pittsburgh Steelers. And, and, and that, to me... If you want to know anything about football, college football, and Mike being a graduate assistant, which basically means you're a glorified intern, you, you know, you don't, I don't think you even have uh, health insurance. I mean, you're desperate for a job. That's right. your entire life is to get a job. And uh, interestingly, Mike does not get that job until three years later when it opens up again, which simultaneously blows up the entire cover-up theory because the first thing that would happen in a cover-up is that they would tell Mike, Mike, thanks so much for coming to tell us about this horrible thing. Uh, keep this between you and me. And oh, by the way, you've been doing such a great job. I don't know if you heard, Kenny Jackson just left to go to the Pittsburgh Steelers. We've got this wide receivers coaching job. Congratulations. You're our new wide receivers coach. None of that happened. None of that happened because there was no cover-up. It was the job Mike wanted, but he didn't get. And he knew immediately he wasn't going to get it. We have an email from Sue Paterno, Joe Paterno's longtime wife, who has a legendary memory. She sent an email to someone integral in this case, which we have and which we posted and we made part of the podcast, where she describes that meeting between Joe Paterno and Mike McQuarrie as having occurred over a three-minute span while Joe, ironically, was himself getting out of the shower (laughs) to go to an event in Pittsburgh. Now, you cannot tell 80 or then, I guess, 74-year-old or 73-year-old Joe Paterno, legendary football coach, about a sexual assault of a young child by his legendary former assistant in three minutes. You cannot do that. It's not possible. It didn't happen. What happened was Mike realized he wasn't getting the job, and and he put in this mark the box. Oh, by the way, coach. I saw Jerry Sadusky in a shower with a boy recently, and it really made me uncomfortable. I think someone ought to know about it. Joe says, okay, thanks so much, Mike, for coming. Um, we're going to we'll, we'll make sure that uh, Gary Schultz and Tim Curley know about this. We'll, we'll uh, check it out and, uh, you know, have a good day. I got to go. That's what happened. And it was right, not. So, right. So where we're at now, he's got, you got Mike McQuarrie, tells Joe Paterno, really probably used the Jerry Sandusky allegation as a hook to try to get a job. McQuarrie's not a good guy. He's not a, he's not a super nice guy, not a great guy, has issues. He sent, you know, he, he, there's, lot, there's lots of intermingling things. We go down deep wormholes on all this, but he had his own problems, had his own possible law enforcement entanglements so that when he was contacted by law enforcement, he thought it could have been about him sending uh, bad pictures of himself to another woman who he's not married to, lots of things. Mike, so Mike McQuarrie goes in there, allegedly tells Joe Paterno in three minutes about something that occurred in the shower. And this is what everybody needs to get, and I'm going to turn it back over to you. Is that so? Then Joe Paterno, and then it, well, it then involves, of course, the staff from the administrative staff from the university, the athletic director Tim Curley, Gary Schultz, the VP. There was at this time. Everybody needs to understand this. There was no assertion of a sexual battery or what other states would call a sexual assault. Nothing. If you would go into that, John. Well, the ultimate reason, and by the way, with regard to Mike McQuarrie, um, it should be noted that Mike McQuarrie is no longer married. He was married when this scandal hit. 
he is now divorced. Um, and that's not a coincidence based upon what was some of the things that were really going on uh, when investigators came to go talk to Mike McCurry. By the way, investigators who were desperate after a two year long investigation that had gone nowhere, nowhere. They were about to drop it. And then all of a sudden they find out of, about Mike McCreary under very uh, suspicious, I would say, strange uh, circumstances. They got an email the day after the governor got elected, uh, Tom Corbett Tom in Corbett. Pennsylvania, uh, sent to the wrong person, by the way. And, uh, and the allegation had nothing to do with a sexual assault. But they were able to, in my view, manipulate Mike McQuarrie because of leverage and probably just basic psychology into exaggerating what he witnessed. And by the way, I have no problem with Mike McQuarrie uh, being uncomfortable seeing Jerry Sandusky in a shower with a 13-year-old boy uh, alone at night. I, I do think that culturally people don't understand, first of all, this was this was 2000 in Happy Valley, Pennsylvania. That's a different world than we're living in today. I think people need to understand that, number one. Uh, number two, the culture of football, which I am steeped in, having coached high school football, covered college and pro football, especially Sports back then, and there was, there was testimony to this, it was not unusual for that kind of activity to be going on in the showers. I mean, no. when we made activity, I mean, people just showering together, adults, Kids, you know, teenagers, uh, athletes, whatever. That was me, that was not break, unusual. Let me break in on you with that, so you can explain this further too, John. Is that this was an extremely public shower? People could access yeah. it. That there was a hockey game going on. This was there was a rock concert going on. This is oh, this is not a closed-in shower stall. This is multiple, multiple heads coming out of a wall where everybody you have basically a football team would shower, and that's and that's. Where we're at, and everybody needs to get also the time frames on this because it can get a little bit confusing. Is when you're dealing with the actual date that this occurred, which was 12 29 2000, then it spans over until until 2011. This whole thing goes on, and basically, the state attorney ends up with Aaron Fisher making a, a very basically a un, it's unable to be backed up in any way sh- shape or form assertion against jerry sandusky he's such a lousy and that started in like 2008 if i was right then that for two years it went on and they couldn't they couldn't even go to grand juries or get you know really fo- formal charges against jerry sandusky's aaron fisher basically lying and we all know he was lying there's again no evidence at all that jerry did anything to him either but um basically was so was such a horrible witness that mike mcquery comes in remember that this is 10, 11 years after the original incident. So Mike, all these years. And while Mike McQuarrie is going and participating with Jerry Sandusky at various golf tournaments for the second mile and various Penn State events, no problem, nobody's saying a word, no, no problem at all. No, Again, no evidence, no cooperating evidence that there was any fracture in their relationship, nothing at all. So everyone, I just want everybody to get the timeline because you had this occur basically in, two, in 2001 and then a long desert period, nobody talking about anything, and then it explodes in 2010, 2011. Go ahead. Well, that's really important because of the nature of people's memories. And I think mm-hmm. that that's why Mike was, was much more easily manipulated because of the 10-year time lapse. I've used the uh, analogy that um, what basically happened here was this, that Mike McQuarrie was walking past the Loch Ness in Scotland <laughs> and um, and he saw some ripples in the water and maybe a head poking out of the water. And he was thought that was weird. And it was and it was part of his memory. Um, and but he never got a real good explanation for it. And he did tell a couple people about it, but he then forgot about it because it wasn't that big of a deal because he never heard that there was a monster in the Loch Ness. And then 10 years later, investigators come to him under circumstances that have him very agitated and uh, and very leveraged. And all of a sudden, uh, they say to him, hey, Mike, uh, we heard you you saw something in the lock. Did you know that there's a monster in that lock? And we need to get that monster. Can you help us get that monster? And Mike goes, oh, my gosh. Yeah. That thing I saw uh, you know, 10 years ago all of a sudden gets much more exaggerated. And you got to remember, he's more than willing to to change his story just a little bit. It doesn't take much of a change to go from a, a male adult and a, and a kid in the shower to all of a sudden you know, something that's just a little weird and maybe inappropriate to something that's horrendous. 
and uh, and investigators were very incentivized to get that done. But I want to make sure that we get make that we make people understand that the the final nail in the coffin for the McQuarrie story is we now know who the boy in the shower was. Right. Boy in the shower never testified at trial because the prosecution didn't like his story. <laughs> I I was the person who figured out because uh, no one was willing to tell me, but I was I you know I did some research and, and some good guesswork. And I figured out that the boy in the shower was indeed a guy by the name of Alan Myers, who at the time was almost 14 years old. He was two and a half years away from winning a varsity letter on his high school football team. So he's no little kid. And uh, and this was a guy who Jerry Sandusky thought of as a son. He, Jerry Sandusky does not have any biological children. He had six adopted kids. But Alan Myers was maybe closer to him than uh, at least a couple of his adopted kids, and certainly at this time period. And Alan Myers came forward before Jerry Sadusky's arrest and wrote letters to the editor in local newspapers with great details about their relationship and uh, how absurd the allegations against Jerry Sadusky were, because at that time, they were being reported in the local newspaper, which had very suspiciously based upon a, a leak of grand jury investigation work, which is supposed to be illegal by the Pulitzer Prize winning fraud, Sarah Gannum. Uh, so because that had gotten out into the ether locally, Alan Myers had, had written a couple of letters to the editors supporting Jerry in the local newspaper. And then on the day Joe Paterno was fired, this is maybe the most uh, amazing, so many amazing things, but this might be the most amazing thing that happened in this in that entire week is that unbeknownst to anybody, the day Joe Paterno was fired, the day Grand Spaniard was fired, the day that there's, the night that there's riots in State College because of this, the night that, that all of this collapses in front of the nation, Alan Myers had given a statement to an FBI-trained former police officer who was an investigator for the defense in extensive detail, talking about the night of the McQuarrie episode, how Mike McQuarrie is not telling the truth, that he knows he was there that night, that he remembers a couple of details only the boy in the shower could possibly have known, and that Jerry Sandusky never did anything to him. Jerry Sandusky's the greatest thing that ever happened to him, and you'll find this particularly interesting given your law enforcement days. He, he acknowledges that he had already been interviewed a couple of months previously by law enforcement, and he ended the interview by saying, quote, I think you're trying to get me to lie about Jerry Sandusky. I will never say anything bad about Jerry Sandusky. And he left the interview. Which is a, which is a big point too, John, because later on during the, during the trial, they're saying that victim two, I, I, I hate even calling them victims, accuser two, victim two, Alan Myers, they said that they don't know who it is during the entire trial because Alan Myers didn't come forward with his sexual assault allegations till after the trial because he didn't want to perjure himself and send Jerry to prison because he actually loved Jerry like a father but just wanted to cash in at the end. But all they, they basically the prosecution team, bullface lied, said they didn't know who, who victim number two was. They said it was only known by God, I believe is how you framed it on the, or how they framed it, and that's how you reported it on the podcast, which ju you just said a minute ago, totally contradicts that because he gave a sworn statement to law enforcement before the trial ever started. So the, the prosecution team knew who Alan Myers was, knew that he had said that Jerry Sandusky did not sexually abuse him in any way, shape, or form. They knew that and then lied to the papers, lied to the judge, lied to everybody and said they didn't know who he was. Yeah, and, and that one of the um, titles of our episodes is Known Only to God which is about uh, Alan Myers, so-called victim number two, the, the prosecutor told the jury, because he had to be thinking, you know, somebody in the jury is gonna be wondering, well, we have these eight accusers that have testified. Why have we not had an accuser in the McQuarrie episode? I mean, think about this, Tom. This is the most infamous case or of alleged child sexual molestation in the modern history, maybe the entire history of the United States. Oh, yeah. Never gotten more publicity than this. And there's, Penn State has already said there's millions of dollars on the table. So a case with unbelievable amounts of publicity, incredible amounts of money, 
This is your chance for justice if you were sexually abused by Jason Dusky. He's going to trial. Speak now or forever hold your peace. And they can't find the kid? <laughs> this, I mean, this, this supposedly at the time it only happened nine or ten years ago based upon their incorrect dates. The kid would, by their ages, which were wrong, would have been around 20 years old at that time. Why can't they find him? Well, that's so a they lie. come up I with mean, this. It was a they, lie. It right. was, that all, well, well, they, that they all was a with, lie. That he had already right. given a statement to law enforcement. Everything right. they said where well, they can't find the kid, you actually had the state attorney put out some sort of ad or some sort of notification out to the public that we're looking for victim two. And then they'd already interviewed victim two, which was Alan Myers, the child, which is the really the, the most important person in this entire case because there is no case without Alan Myers. There's nothing because uh, Aaron Fisher's useless. So as a witness and as a victim, he can't even testify because he bursts into tears, not because he's victimized, but because he knows he's lying. So you have no case and you have them hunting for something that they already have. So it's absolutely, it's just, it's just total dishonesty from day one of when it comes to Alan Myers, when it comes to the prosecute, you know, the prosecution team. But they came up with this known only to God charade because they, they thought, somebody on the jury might be wondering, right? Where, where's victim number two? So that, yeah, that was the right. best they could come up with, which is you've already alluded to, was a lie. They knew who Alan Myers was. They didn't like his story. The governor of the state, Tom Corbett, was qu quoted himself as telling the Penn State Board of Trustees when he urged people to vote to fire Joe Paterno and Grand Spanier, remember the boy in the shower. And then he... Then he claimed months later that he never said that, even though he said it on camera. Uh, because I believe he learned who Alan Myers was and that they didn't like Alan Myers' story and that they wanted to run as far away from Alan Myers as possible. By the way, it should be noted, Alan Myers, and you've already uh, alluded to this timeline, but this is important. It's not, I'm not just making this up that Alan Myers was the kid in the shower. Penn State paid him $8 million as the, the boy in the shower, but he didn't come forward for his money until after the trial. And, you know, we can't, we cannot um, allow the news media incompetence in this case to get, to, to not have enough mention. I mean, I know we only have 55 minutes, but when, when so-called victim number two's lawyers came forward after the trial and said, hey, Look, everybody, we represent the boy in the shower. Hallelujah. It's a month after the trial. And uh, wow, we're going to sue Penn State. Not one media outlet, not one media outlet even asked the question, gee, where was he last month when we had a trial? And why didn't he testify? Not one. That's how incompetent these morons in the media are. And, uh, and that, is the, that was the central question of this entire case. In most people's mindset, let's be clear, without Mike McCurry's allegation, the public never even hears anything about this. This is never, there's no charge, there's no public allegation, there's no Joe Paterno firing, there's no Penn State cover-up. It's all about this. And we know from the date and from Alan Myers, victim number two, that it didn't happen. And it, and it was easy to figure out. My gosh, you know, a, a non-celebrity with no resources like me was able to figure it out all on my own. And I got prevented from telling the story on the Today Show. The Today Show sabotaged my efforts to tell the story when I when I gave them the the Jerry Sandusky interview. I mean, it, and that was just the beginning of a, a comedy of of errors that have that never stops from a media perspective. We have an entire episode, episode number thirteen of our our podcast with the benefit of hindsight is called the media, which uh, frankly I, I, is a dissertation, a PhD class in just how completely and totally broken and incompetent the news media is in this modern era. Let me break in with this. Now, as we go, now, so you've got McQuarrie goes to Joe Paterno in a three-minute conversation as, as Joe Paterno is getting out of the shower, tells him he saw something. Now, after that occurs, what's the, what happens next? We know, I know that he ends up, that McQuarrie with his dad, and with a doctor ends up meeting with Curly and Schultz. Can you go into that and what Mike McQuarrie told them at that time? All right, well, Mike McQuarrie's story is that after he witnesses whatever he witnessed in, in, the, in the shower, by the way, it should be pointed out that 
his claim of what he witnessed has changed many times. And his initial uh, testimony it was basically what he heard, not what he saw, what he heard. And what may have seen for two or three seconds through a reflection in a in a foggy mirror in a in a shower in a in a in you know in the bathroom of, of a shower area. Um, and so his story is that after that he calls his dad and his dad uh, tells him to come over and he has a conversation with his dad and a guy by the name of Dr. Dranoff. And this is where the cover-up theory never made any sense and the and the way that Joe Paterno was treated and the Penn State administrators were treated was so incredibly unfair, even if this had been a true story, which it was not, as I would later find out. And that is because of this. According to the testimony of Mike and Dr. Dranoff and Mike McCurry's dad, Dr. Dranoff, who was a mandated reporter, all right, so if, if Dr. Dranoff had, had believed that Mike McCurry had told him about a sexual assault. He was mandated to go to law enforcement to talk to tell uh, law enforcement about this, which he did not do. And the reason he did not do that is because he asked Mike three times, three times, did you see a sex act? And Mike said, no, three times, no. Now, right there, that's game, set, match on the cover-up, right? Because if Mike didn't tell Dranoff that he saw a sex act, how would he have told uh, Gary Schultz and, and Tim Curley a couple weeks later? In my view, it was many weeks later uh, because we got the date wrong. Um, and by the way, the Dr. Dranoff testimony, and this gets very complicated, but in my view, the Dr. Dranoff testimony and the testimony of his own dad support my view of the incorrect date. Because, and again, it gets complicated as to why, uh, but we explain it all in the first episode of the podcast with the benefit of hindsight. But the reality is that uh, that Mike that makes it clear to Dranoff by Dranoff's own testimony that he did not see a sex act, which is consistent with my Loch Ness Monster theory. Right. right. Because, you know, back in in two, late 2000, what he saw was Jerry in a shower with a boy made him uncomfortable. It was inappropriate. Ten years later, under pressure from investigators, all of a sudden, he sees the Loch Ness monster, and and that that's where the ten year time period becomes so incredibly important. Yeah, so you end up you end up with McQuarrie telling Dr. Dranoff three times, probably because Dr. Dranoff, as a mandated reporter, wanted to make sure did did you see a sex act? No, no, no. Now, as a law enforcement officer, it's case closed. There's no way you have a cover up of a sexual assault when the witness says there was no sexual assault. This sounds so simplistic, but in the world that we're living in, when you have mandated vaccines for a 99.9% survival virus and shutting everything down for absolutely no reason, this is, this is very emblematic of where we are as a society right now. So you end up he, he, he flat out in Curley's mind, Schultz's mind, and probably at some point communicated to Graham Spanier, there was no sexual assault. Then you have, you'll have to give me the right names, whether it was Schultz or or Curly, I think it was Curly, who said, uh, he got, I believe it was in communication with Jerry Sandusky, I know it was Curly, because that's the one you said who seems to have the deepest guilt about not contacting Alan Myers, because Jerry Sandusky says, call him. You know what, you got some weird, you guys think something weird happened, and just to reiterate, Mike McQuarrie saw a reflection in a mirror of, of, of two male figures in a shower, one younger than the other, that's it. No anal sex, no sex act, nothing. He heard a noise and he saw a reflection in the mirror. That's all that happened. He ended up changing his story 10 years later to seeing full anal rape of a, of a child. That never was testified to at the original time. So, he get, so Sandusky offers up Alan Myers to Tim Curley. What happens then? And just to make sure people understand, even the jury didn't believe that Mike McQuarrie was claiming anal rape because they acquitted Jerry Sandusky on that charge at trial. <laughs> One of the three charges that Jerry Sandusky got acquitted on was the Mike McQuarrie rape allegation. I call it the Mike McQuarrie rape allegation because there was no witness. There was no victim, no accuser, uh, because Alan Myers did not testify. The, the Tim Curley conversation with Jerry Sandusky is incredibly important. It's the most under estimated 
probably conversation in this entire saga. I even said that in my uh, first Today Show interview on this case uh, with Matt Lauer um, back in, in 2012, or th actually 2013. Um, and, and, and one of the things that happens in that conversation is, as you've already said, Jerry says, look, um, I, why don't you talk to the kid? I'll give you his phone number. But Jerry is actually put in an odd position, in a difficult position, because Mike got the date wrong. Because the first time Jerry gets asked about it from Tim Curley, he doesn't know what no. Tim's talking about. Why? Because six weeks or seven weeks by this point have passed. And Tim thinks that this is a contemporaneous report by Mike McQuarry, when in fact Mike waited six weeks before he went to go see Joe Paterno because this was really about the Kenny Jackson job. So the reality is that when Jerry first gets asked by Tim, he doesn't know what the heck Tim is talking about. And then he goes home and he thinks about it. And he goes, wait a minute, they must be talking about Alan. That happened a while back. And um, why don't they talk to Alan? Well, Tim was so convinced that Jerry, because he knew Jerry, he knew Jerry was a goofball. This Jerry was an incredibly well-respected guy, a local legend, ran this uh, charity. He would had been a legendary football coach, helped Penn State win two national championships. That Tim had known him for a long time. They knew Jerry was a goofball with boundary issues, and th that he loved these kids, and and that you know he he was like the Pied Piper, and so. Tim was convinced that nothing had happened, and he doesn't even bother to call Alan Myers, which was unfortunately a tragic mistake in retrospect, because yeah. if he had done so and documented that, it's you over. and I wouldn't be talking about this right now, and history yeah. would be very different. Well, the thing is, too, is like, and this is another point of leverage, is that everybody will say, as we're honing, man, I wish I could talk to you for three hours. Seriously, if I, I could, I would. And... Um, but everybody will say, but John, but Tom, people who believe in the innocence of Jerry Sandusky, which, by the way, is getting bigger and bigger of those who believe in the innocence of Jerry Sandusky. Because once again, everybody needs to remember there's no evidence whatsoever. How would you like it? I say this to the audience and anybody who ever watches this podcast. How would you like to be convicted and sentenced to life in prison on the word of a person? Just they just may, they can just say whatever they want. And that's all there is here. There is nothing else but various people saying that Jerry Sandusky did things. Now, a lot of people will say, yeah, John, yeah, Tom, what about all these other victims? And this is how I, this is how I look at it. It's basically you have liars looking for credibility and validity from other liars. And then what happens is everybody needs to remember something is during the trial, there was 10 victims. Everybody else, what did it end up being, like 32 or something like that? Victims, I can't remember what the number was. But at trial, there was 10 victims, one of which is what I call the janitor case, which is a non, it's a vacuous victim because there is no victim. But what you have is a bunch of people who are being validated from numbers, but everybody is actually lying. People are looking at, you know, you know everybody's saying, well, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and cash in because somebody has to be right here because there's already all these people. So somebody has to be right. So it doesn't really harm anything if I go ahead and lie because it has to be true because there's so many other people that are saying that it's true. So just going over some of these victims, okay, it starts off, of course. Well, let me, let me, with Tom, let me address that for a second. Yeah, go ahead. Tom, because cause what, what you just said there is probably the number one response that people give uh, me and my supporters on Twitter, I mean, almost on a daily basis, uh, this debate ensues and we know exactly how it will go down because the other side will say, well, not all those uh, victims can be lying. Not all of them can be lying, right? And, and what I, I say <laughs> and my supporters say in response is two things. Um, tell us the one accuser you are most confident in and why. And nobody can even try that question. Right. Try to answer that question because right. there are there, none of them are credible. And then right. more exactly. to your point about about this communal credibility. And I've had conversations with um, famed defense attorney here in Los Angeles, Tom Mesero, 
who represented uh, Michael Jackson and Bill Cosby. And, uh, you know, he and I have become pretty decent friends. And uh, he, Tom is appalled uh, that that somehow we got to this point where you can face there were eight human accusers at Jerry Sandusky's trial all at one time, even though the episodes had nothing to do with each other. Well, that's inherently unfair because totally. by, by having eight people, the jury goes, well, eight versus one. They all can't be lying. And so therefore, the defendant loses all presumption of innocence, all presumption of innocence. And without the presumption of innocence in a case like this, you're done. You have no chance whatsoever. And and what the the jury never knew, because it didn't happen until after the trial, was every single person who testified at that trial against Jerry Sandusky, including Mike McQuarrie, by the way, got paid millions and millions of dollars, millions. Exactly. Uh, uh, if you take one uh, out of the equation and only got paid 1.2 million, ironically enough, because he told the truth and there was almost no, there was almost no allegation there, victim number six. That so if concept? you take him out of the equation, yeah. the, the average accuser got paid at, at trial, got paid, I believe eight or $9 million. One of them got paid $20 million. Twenty, and his story was the most preposterous of the entire trial. Let's let's break in on that because we need to remember who is Jerry Sandusky working with. He's working what we call the uh, he works in the second mile. These are all high risk kids, kids that don't have dads, no money. There's moms involved. Which sadly, I wish we could get involved with Deborah McCord. I wish we get with Don Fisher. I wish we had time to get into these people because these are Jerry Springer episodes, not Jerry Sandusky episodes. Because these people need to remember something: the love of money is the root of all evil. First Timothy chapter six, verse ten. It's and that and that's what happened here. Is you have a very small. You said eight. I added this ten. I, obviously, I'm the one who's wrong. But I mean, eight or eight or eight victims at trial, eight accusers at trial. And then everybody else comes afterwards when it when it's known that Penn State is opening up their checkbook, correct? Yeah, and just to, to clarify that point, there were 10 allegations at trial, but only eight of those had accusers. Oh, the okay, shower right. episode didn't have an accuser. Oh, right. The janitor episode didn't have an accuser because yeah. the janitor episode was a figment of somebody's imagination. With I mean, it was just a right. joke. Two and eight. And yet Two and somehow eight, there Jerry was no does- accuser, right. And, 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 yeah. and somehow Jerry Sandusky got convicted of five counts on the on the janitor episode, which is just uh, and I'm really? a front to our oh entire God. judicial system. Um, but but I, I'm actually amazed, Tom. I, I'm amazed that there weren't more accusers of Jerry Sandusky, because <laughs> at the, in the end, um, 36 men got paid by Penn State well over 100 million dollars. Right. And and by the end, they were paying they were sending checks of eight or nine million dollars to people who had publicly said Jerry was the greatest thing ever. There was no evidence of any allegation whatsoever. And they waited, these people waited five or six years before making a claim. And they were, they were it was a going at a business sale. It is, it is maybe the greatest testament to Jerry Zanowski that only 36 people came forward. And by the way, Jerry only knew half of them. He only knew half of these people that got paid never had any contact with Jerry Sandusky based upon my investigation. And and exactly. because that there was no vetting here because Penn State, people think that somehow Penn State paying this money was evidence of guilt. No, no, no. This is a liberal academia state school spending other people's money to get complimented by the New York Times. There, there's, this is not a private corporation. There, 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 nobody's losing any of their own money. This, this is, this is, wokeness before we knew what wokeness was. This is virtue signaling. Penn State was signaling its virtue to the rest of academia that we're going to self-flagellate as much as we possibly can to show how horrible this was. And oh, by the way, let's not forget this part. Academics, the uh, most academics, 
hate football with a passion because it's the they know that that most people care way more about, about the football, football team than they care about the academics of the school they hate it they hate it and they this was their chance to drive a stake through the heart of not only football but Joe Paterno who was considered to be the beacon of of character and goodness in college football and that was another and and, and by the way Joe Paterno was also a Republican which was another factor that the media love to bring down uh, the goody two-shoes Joe Paterno who they could right. pretend was a fraud for 50 years. Somehow he got away with being a total fraud for 50 years. Swimming we, with sharks was a fraud for 50 have, years. You, you can't have a cover-up. Everyone needs to remember this now. You can please listen to the benefit of hindsight. Once you start listening to this program, you will not be able to put it down. It started, when, when John put this out, John Ziegler and Elizabeth put this out, I couldn't stop listening to it. I, could, I would wait. I would check every day. They put another one out. You've got to listen to it. You cannot have a cover-up without an allegation to cover up. There was never an allegation of a sexual assault for Tim Curley, Graham Spanier, or Gary Schwartz, uh, Schultz to cover up. There was never any, anything to cover up at all from, from day one. Now, when we, got, when, we, when we look at this now, just on, I want to just focus on the victims in our waning moments here for just just a moment we had eight 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 true victims at trial 10 positions two of those positions it was victim two and victim eight that i have eight. where there was no there was no victim to testify but even the janitor one which is hysterical which i want to focus on for just a minute because again this is very emblematic of this entire case where you have a janitor who went into the police, spoke to the police and said, and they asked him, I saw, t I saw oral sex in the shower. And the police asked him, was it Jerry Sandusky? And I believe the janitor again, I don't know why we keep seeing game three keeps coming up. I believe said three times it was not Jerry Sandusky. And they still convicted him of those charges. Can you get into that briefly? The janitor episode uh, tells you everything you know about this case. Jerry Sandusky was convicted on five serious counts in a situation where the only supposed direct witness, James Calhoun, told investigators three times it was not Jerry Sandusky. But they decided he had dementia, so they never used that interview. For some reason, the defense didn't put it into evidence, and they never allowed him to testify at trial. The judge then bizarrely allowed hearsay testimony for one other guy that Calhoun supposedly told, except the location of that allegation changed. There's no date. There's no accuser. There's no contemporaneous report. There's, there's nothing. And yet, somehow, Jerry Sadowski got convicted on all five counts and to me, uh, that right there tells you everything you need to know about well, uh, massive so, injustice in this case. And just so everybody knows, okay, it was no different. I wrote the, I wrote the name, names of the accusers down. It's no different as far as evidentiary value in their testimonies. There's no difference with Jason Subsescu, uh, uh, Brett House, Michael Kajak, uh, Zach Constant, Justin Struble, Aaron Fisher, of course, there was no more evidentiary value in their testimony than there was uh, for the janitor than there was with the janitor who never did testify either. There was no more evidentiary value. They had no cooperating evidence. They had no DNA evidence. They had no witnesses, nothing. And you, well, who, how would anybody else like to go to trial and be sentenced to life in prison on he said, she said, and then everybody afterwards, uh, you know, cash in on it. Listen, John, I want, I, want to get, I want to shout this out to you before we go because we only got like 50 seconds. Now, you're going to be tackling or you have already tackled Michael Jackson and Matt Lauer, too. Are those things in your, uh, you know, in your vision for the future here? Are you going to be tackling the Matt Lauer case, Michael Jackson, anything like that for us to look at? Well, I, I've done a lot of work on both Michael Jackson and Matt Lauer, and both of them are, are completely innocent, believe it or not. Matt Lauer, bizarrely, is now one of my best friends, <laughs> considering how he treated me in my three Today Show interviews. That was very bizarre, but that's the nature of my life. Um, but my career is probably hey John, I gotta, I, hey, John, I got to jump in. Listen, I'm going to be watching for that. Please do another Benefit of Hindsight-esque podcast or broadcast. My career is over, guys. Tom. <laughs> yeah, well, I, hope, I hope not, because you're one of the best out there. I really appreciate you. I only got six seconds left. Thank you so much for coming on. I'm going to be calling you in a minute, and God bless everybody else. See you next time. I stand unequivocally on the Word of God. 
on healing, the Bible. Prosperity, the Bible. Sin, the Bible. Everything. Protection, the Bible. Church, the Bible. Check out our new TLP trucker hat. When you give $25 or more to the podcast, we will ship one out to you. Thank you for investing in the program, and we look forward to you tuning in next time.